Welcome to episode 3 of the On Country podcast. I'm Mark Woling. My guest this week is Professor Sharon Sullivan AO. At 80 years old, Professor Sullivan remains an intellectual firebrand. She continues to bring energy and commitment to not only protecting Australia's cultural landscapes, but educating the broader global public of their enormous cultural value. Professor Sullivan has had a distinguished career in cultural heritage management. She is a former Executive Director of the Australian Heritage Commission and a former member of the World Heritage Committee. She is the author of five books and over 50 papers. For over 40 years, she has contributed to the development of cultural heritage management in Australia and internationally, including in the USA, China, Africa and Cambodia. She is the Deputy Chair of the New South Wales Heritage Council and Chair of the Port Arthur Heritage Sites Authority. Sharon has been awarded an honorary doctorate from James Cook University and the University of New England and she was appointed an officer in the Order of Australia and a life member of UNESCO's ICOMOS for services to heritage conservation. Sharon has also been awarded the Rhys Jones Memorial Medal for services to archaeology. In this episode, I continue tracing the origins of the Indigenous Ranger Program, but this time by looking at the evolution of cultural resource management during a period when nature and culture were still seen as oppositional concepts, and Indigenous people were still excluded from having any control or jurisdiction over their traditional landscapes and sites. From the late 1960s through the 70s and 80s, Professor Sullivan, together with her Indigenous colleagues Ray Kelly, Glenn Morris, Terry Donovan, Badger Bates, David Crewe and Jenny Carroll, virtually invented the field of modern collaborative cultural resource management, radically changing the way Indigenous heritage was valued, assessed and protected. Their work laid the foundation for placing Indigenous people at the centre of cultural landscape management in Australia. Sharon lives on a farm in northern New South Wales. We had some connectivity issues with a satellite during the recording of this interview, but so I ended up recording it on my portable digital recorder over the phone. But I think you'll find the audio is still okay. There's some terrific stories in this interview, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Sharon, welcome to the On Country podcast, and I know you're uh, too modest to say this yourself, but I'd like to recognise you as one of our uh, non-Indigenous elders in the archaeological and cultural heritage profession. Um, You were born in 1944, and you turn 80 next year, I think. Um, That's correct, yeah. Yeah, and to quote your uh, uh, old colleague uh, Leslie Maynard, 
who came to join you at New South Wales Parkinson's Wildlife Service in 1981. She said, It was the most exciting and productive and happiest part of my career, helping Sharon to invent cultural heritage resource management in Australia. Ah, that's very nice of Leslie. And, but one of the key points that she's making there is we did have to invent it as we went along. And that um, can be very difficult, but it's also a very, very privileged position. You know, when you you sort of have free reign because really nobody's thought about it a lot before. So, you know, that was very advantageous, I suppose, from the point of view of um, being able to spread your thoughts wide. Yeah, and I think it's um, worthwhile um, right at the outset, uh, which we're we're going to talk in depth about, is that um, while you were uh, doing this, that you worked very closely in partnership with Indigenous people and indeed championed their involvement um, and you're widely recognised as a pioneer in this regard. Um, So... Well, um, yes... Yeah, and it's this is it's this really lovely story about resilience and relationships. And we we were um, we've had a few hiccups in trying to achieve this interview. And and it's um, we were talking uh, a, a couple of days ago, and I was just saying to you that I'd really like to just um, quote um, Nadi Simpson, who's a uh, you all right woman and um, there was I was listening some time ago to Richard Feidler on conversations and he did this really inter- interesting interview with her and she said um, and I sort of quote and paraphrase a little she said I see value in the relationship in the relationship between those two people and the coming together of those two different ways of understanding words and place and story so that knowledge wasn't saved by that woman, the anthropologist. It was saved by the relationship. And I think um, what Nadi's um, really summarising there, which is really the story about what you did and what ultimately I'm trying to do with this podcast, is to document how powerful um, relationships between Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, when we work together... And, and what we can achieve, and I think um, it sort of sets out the the, the story of, of, of what you what you what you did. Yes, well, I I think that's absolutely correct. I mean, it is um, the relationship um, that uh, begins so tentatively, you know, with much hesitancy on both sides, and um, is never. Um, is never without its challenges, but is a really amazing experience, I think, for both the groups in that relationship because it, it is a whole new... It's a whole new um, opportunity for people. Yeah, and I think the quote, it frames so many things, and we'll talk about that today, and so I've also talked about in my last couple of episodes that this partnership between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people working together for a common good, which is sort of making our country a better place. And I also think mm-hmm. it has a particular resonance with the impending uh, referendum vote and the voice, and I know you've been quite active in that campaign. Can you talk a little about that? Oh, well... Um, <laughs> yes, well, it's been um, 
I haven't been able to do as much as I have been because I've got a nice virus. But um, it's been very interesting working in... Um, I live just near Bowerville in um, eastern New South Wales, you know, near the coast. And Bowerville is very well known as a community with a, a large Aboriginal um, population and also where there have been sort of tragedies from the murders of people in that community. So... Um, it's a it's a sort of um, uh, a symbol, if you like, of some of the issues and some of the problems that the, the yes vote is trying to address. Um, and I think that's ironic because one of the um, one of the problems that beset the Aboriginal people who were trying to um, you know find out what had happened to their loved ones was they really it was very difficult for them to get any connection with the right people who would be able to assist them. And, um, you know, that's what The Voice is about in a way. It's about these relationships and making these connections stronger and more certain. And that's why I think it's so important. Um, and working here, it's very interesting because this, this electorate had really one of the lowest votes for the 1967 um, referendum which gave Aboriginal people citizenship effectively. Um, and there's still in this community quite a, um, I suppose, a um, traditional settler attitude that, that um, in some areas hasn't shifted a lot. So it's a bit of um, a, a challenge, but I have met the most exciting and interesting people um, working on this campaign, sort of indomitable, organised. Um, it's very inspiring in that way. Um, so, you know, it's it's a thing to do that is essential. Essential, really. It's it's part of um, it's part of that ongoing relationship. And um, I just hope we'll get a better outcome than we got in 1967 in this electorate. Yeah. Yeah, and I think um, as we're seeing that um, the 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 big difference between now with this referendum and the nineteen sixty seven referendum is um, this uh, all this extraordinary um, let's just call it bullshit that is coming out with um, the social media and it's um, it's staggering what's happening and it's it's very unfortunate because we're just talking about setting up an advisory body that can provide consistency to for aboriginal people to deliver better policy outcomes and better outcomes on the ground on the ground so yeah yes i i know mark if i think about that too much it, it really um you know yeah. It really distresses me because, I mean, I um, I was acting, I mean, I was, part of my career took place when we had ATSIC, you yeah. know, the Aboriginal yeah. and Torres Strait Islanders yep. uh, Commission, which which basically is what what the Aboriginal people want back. The reason they want it back is it was very successful in making that connection um, between the local community, what they want by the way of housing or whatever it is, and the best way to get it. And during the last five years of its um, existence, that uh, ATSIC was able to make very good, strong bonds with um, the people in the government supplying the, the actual services. 
and therefore it was targeted much better. And if you look at the record of that time, a lot more work got done on ground to improve Aboriginal conditions than had been had got done before or since in many instances. So, um, and the the problem was, of course, that it was then abolished by the Howard government. So. Um, really, all of this is asking is that the Aboriginal people can have again something which was successful and that the next government won't have the right to abolish it again. It's, it's really... Um, and, you know, guess what? Nobody's homes got taken or charged any rent to live in Australia during the ATSIC period. Um, so, you know, um, I just think that it's very... Um, difficult because um, this this bullshit um, has been sort of, you know, has been making something which is very simple, very worrying for people. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm just waiting for someone to come out and say that it's going to cause aliens to invade us or something. That's probably the next. <laughs> yeah. Look, let's, let's move on from that um, and because uh, we could get bogged down in that. And I think the story yes. we're going to talk about today will hopefully just uh, reinforce how much uh, working together and doing it consistently sort of is the, for the betterment of our country rather than um, for the detriment. But that's – so you're you're an archaeologist and let's go back to your early years. So where, as a start, where did you uh, grow up? I grew up um, in the New England Ranges. My father had a, a small sheep property um, and I, I did correspondence schools, um, which is, you know, the equivalent of, um, I think, distance education in those days. Um, and I didn't go to school till I was nine. Um, and, I, you know, my mother taught me. And um, I didn't, uh, didn't really even know I was being taught because, you know, it was, it was, a, very, it was a very good environment in which to learn. We didn't have many books. We couldn't afford them, but we, we, my sister and I were allowed to get 16 books out of the library every month when we went to town. And, uh, you know, we ate them up. How, so how far? Then how, I went to a boarding school, which was at, um, first of all, at Glen Innes, at the convent in Glen Innes, and then at St. Ursula's College in Armadale. And that, that was not a, a for me, not a, a very good experience because I'd sort of been taken from um, my family and never never really had associated day, on a day-to-day basis with other children. So when I got to the boarding school, I sort of felt a bit like I was in a madhouse because um, I lived in a world of adults and, you know, I'd been had my farm jobs and, you know, um, and... But suddenly I was in a world of nine-year-olds and that was a very different um, situation. But anyway, I then went to the University of New England um, where I met uh, Isabel McBride, who's um, another person who is very important in this story that you're telling in your podcast because um, Isabel um, was an uh, Australian woman from a young woman from Melbourne who had been to Cambridge and done a a postgraduate degree or diploma in archaeology because at that time the only archaeologist in Australia uh, was John Mulvaney and he was trying to get 
sort of archaeology going in Australia. Um, and so um, Isabel came to New England as a young lecturer and decided to do her PhD on um, the uh, archaeology of um, that this area, the northern, northern, northeastern and um, tableland parts of New South Wales. And so, and she began working, but she began, she, she didn't just go and dig up sites to see, you know, if she could get early dates. She worked um, in the English tradition, really, looking at every, all, everything that the English would call field monuments, you know, paintings, middens, ceremonial grounds, everything. She recorded everything. She worked with local historical societies and she worked with a lot of local Aboriginal people. And this was in 19, 1960 to 1965, a long time ago. So when I started work... Um, with Isabel as a as a volunteer, you know, all during, during my undergraduate career, I, I worked as a volunteer, um, had some wonderful times, um, but but actually met and talked to a number of Aboriginal people about their culture, etc. So that was sort of an early introduction um, from my point of view about that relationship that we're talking about. Yeah, and I think you're you're um, just under. Uh, if I may, I think you're understating just how d- d- difficult and different it was for women back then because it was uh, archaeology and anthropology, indeed most things were male-dominated. And so what was it like for a, a, a young woman going to university at that time? Indeed, just taking us one step back from that, did you find archaeology or did archaeology find you? What were the early influences that sort of... No, dropped? I, I did... Um I was, I suppose I was most interested in history. And in, in many respects, I still am, but I don't see a difference. I see archaeology as, as one means of, you know, discovering history, That's, which is obviously what it is. Yeah. You know, archaeology is a method for finding out about the past, as is, you know, looking at documents or doing oral history, etc. So um, I, I, wasn't specifically thinking of archaeology, but that's because there were no archaeology courses. It was prehistory then, wasn't it? Yes, there was history, and there was, you know, history courses always kicked off with prehistory, but it was always European prehistory, and it was, um, you know, a long time ago, and um, uh, didn't tend to stick in the head. But um, Isabel. Um, was a she taught first year history, which was prehistory, and she did. Um, she so she did introduce us very well to that. But then um, the rest of my, I became I really became I. I didn't do a lot of formal archaeological or anthropological studies because they weren't available. So really, my archae- early archaeological experience was actually in the field. You know. Do the survey, find the stuff, identify it, do excavations, talk to people who might know about it. So um, that's my and and I became, of course, very interested in it because, as I've said, it is a, a form of history. So that's how I came to it. Yeah, um, from history to to archaeology. Yeah, 
and and there's a uh, I, I was once told by a, a, um, a, a woman who was a, a, had a PhD in um, anthropology and archaeology, and she said that at that time. Um, that it was uh, during the 60s and 70s it was viewed that uh, w- women just enrolled in um, anthropology and archaeology just to pass the time until they found a husband so this was the sort of oh. things you're you're up against at that time can you talk a bit about things well, like that what was it like oh well frankly it wasn't like that at the university of new england i mean it, it was a very good Universal still is, but it was a very good university, um, and uh, it had residential. Um, everyone who went to the university was in residence, so it had residential colleges for everyone. They had an equal number of colleges for men and women, and um, I didn't um, identify any uh, discrimination in the courses that I was doing at all, but. I will say that in general, um, what used what used to happen was that um, I think that um, young women doing archaeology or anthropology, um, say at the University of Sydney or some where those disciplines were taught at the time or a bit later, um, would um, do a perfectly good degree. In many cases, they they wouldn't be encouraged to do honours um, f- for the sorts of underlying reasons that you mentioned. And if they did do honours, they would then be, encu- in my observation, they would then be encouraged to do an MA while the male students would be picked out much more regularly for a PhD scholarship. So um, this meant that um, women were not progressed in the discipline in the same way as men. Um, and that, interestingly, is also the reason why there were so many women in early um, cultural heritage management, um, who, because they came to work in government institutions because they were not being encouraged in the same way to, you know, do their PhD and get a postgrad and um, become academics. And, and yeah, you found... um, and that, of course had its advantages had its advantages for the quality of the people that we got you know yeah, you foreshadowed uh, one of my the next questions, which was um, mm. because you you did a, a postgrad and then uh, this opportunity came up to go to New South Wales uh, Parks and Wildlife, and we'll talk about w- w- what was going on there in a, in a moment. Yes, but that was yes. my question: was yes, that's right. what was it because of um, this kind of uh, the I guess the glass ceiling at universities, and that did that prompt you to take that role at um, Parks, or was it more the interest in that that the particular role and your interest oh, in history? Um, I, you know, I very much wanted to pursue the the work that I had been doing with Isabel McBride, and she employed me as a research assistant for two for two years after yeah. um, my honours. Um, and then um, she lost the uh, research assistantship to somebody else in the department, so I didn't have a job, and I had to go teaching. And I was thinking about, I mean, I had enrolled for an MA um, and I was sort of working on that, but I had to go teaching. Um, But 
it was at that exact time that this job came up in 1969. This yeah. job was advertised, the job at national parks, because um, they had just legislation which protected Aboriginal relics. And um, I was... Isabel brought it to my attention. I was teaching at Punch Bowl Boys High, which was very interesting. Um, Isabel brought it to my attention and I um, applied for it. I really didn't expect to get it, but I really, really wanted it. You know, it was exactly what I wanted to do. I don't think I would have been as interested in a PhD as I was in in that because it, it was directly managing and looking after and working with Aboriginal and historic sites. And really, I, I couldn't think of anything better. Yeah. And it was that's, a great opportunity from my point of view. Yeah, and that's um, set the scene for that. So, um, and a bit of context was, so in 69, the um, New South Wales government um, amended the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Act with the aim of protecting uh, what they called ab- Aboriginal relics throughout the state. Yes, um, yes, yes. And under under this act, uh, all relics, regardless of land title, became the property of Crown and uh, the Crown, and permits were required to collect, excavate, damage, or to destroy the relics um, based on recommended recommendations of a statutory committee, which was basically all white fellas. And within the um, act, and I'm quoting here from your paper, is um, Aboriginal people were not mentioned in the legislation and they were given no role at all in its implementation. Um, And the legislation did not protect sites of importance to Aboriginal people, but rather sites of importance to archaeologists. Um, And so the role... uh, that you took on, it was uh, as where you were appointed as an archaeologist historian in 1969, was to, to carry out the intentions of sort of implementing this act. So, can you just talk around that a bit more and, and um, what you were sort of uh, faced with when you first went to parks? Yeah, okay. Well, um, <coughs> I. Um, about this um everything you said is correct and um i'm i'm it, it when i talk to young people about this they, they find it they find it really unbelievable that you know there would be a thing uh, there would be an act in which the, all aboriginal culture was referred to as relics and um in which there there was no connection at all between uh, the creators of those relics and and the relics in terms of their management, etc. And um, there were there were some when you look back, there are reasons for that. And and one of them was that um, people had started collecting artifacts. Um, hobbyists uh, had started collecting artifacts and digging up places to find them and trading in them. Um, stone artifacts, that is, of course, as you probably aware, of a vast Aboriginal people produced a vast array of stone artefacts, many of them very beautiful, very beautifully made, very collectible. Um, and so the archaeologists at the Australian Museum and Sydney University were became concerned that, that they saw the potential of these sites to give them information about the Aboriginal past, and they were very concerned that... Um, uh, these collectors 
and also increasing development would damage these sites. And so um, they had a, a, a perfectly respectable motive for wanting the legislation, but they didn't think at all about uh, the connection between these sites and Aboriginal people. And so then one of the reasons for that, so their main aim was to, was to ensure that important sites were not dug up or defaced and were saved for science, for science specifically. Yeah. And the reason why they felt it was only for science is that it was regarded that Aboriginal people in New South Wales had lost that connection with their culture. Um, the sort of view of what pristine Aboriginal culture was, was that, you know, the more, the, the more, um, the more your culture still resembled as it, as it was in, in 1788, then the more real you were and the more worthy of study and the more worthy of protection your, your customs were because they would provide the best scientific information. So the sort of amazing, remarkable changes that Aboriginal people made in New South Wales, which is, you know, a Holocaust comes and you fight your way through it and you, you're still there standing with your culture 200 years later. But, of course, it's changed because you have changed it to adapt and to live and to still be here. And it's sort of like an expectation that you should be frozen in 1788. And if you weren't, uh, the changes that, that you had made and the modern representation of your culture was not valuable scientifically. So um, when I first looked at this act um, and I thought, well, you know, that's not my experience from working with Isabel McBride. So I went and talked to anthropologists and they um, basically sort of confirmed that really there wasn't much Aboriginal culture at all left in New South Wales, if you can believe it, and that, that you know, it wouldn't be worth trying to find that because it was too contaminated. So... Um, you know that's the that's the background to how this act came to be written the way it was, um, and uh, that clearly needed uh, clearly needed some sort of lateral way of being looked at because in my head it wasn't going together. If you see what I mean? Yeah. So during during this period, um, I, I some other context that was going on. There was the all, all the um, in terms of uh, 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 European heritage. There was the the movement in um, nineteen sixty seven and nineteen sixty eight. So we had the uh, the um, observations on redevelopment uh, of the western side of Sydney Cove um, by John Overall uh, from the the Canberra National Capital Development Commission. And um, that, that sort of where they're going to uh, basically uh, bulldoze the whole of uh, the rocks area and and redevelop it into these sort of awful sort of towers. And so in '68, the New South Wales government had the Sydney Cove Redevelopment Act, and that sort of triggered a whole. As, and you can talk to this more than me because you would have been around. Um, that <coughs> excuse me, that triggered. Um, 
the the sort of uh, protests at the Rock and the the Builders Labourers Federation and local residents uh, uh, having a sit-in back, uh, going into 1973, where 58 people were uh, were arrested. So and also the um, we had IATSIS was formed and there was. Um, the Victorian Archaeological and Aboriginal Relics Presentation Preservation Act in '72, um, and I think the um, Australian Heritage, the Commonwealth Government Heritage legislation, was first developed during this period. So, could you talk to me a bit about the? Was there a, a sort of a feeling of change at, at that time that that people were becoming more aware of a broad, a sort of a deeper resilience in Indigenous culture and just heritage generally? Uh, I would say that um, uh, people were becoming, in the first place, ordinary people and also, you know, historians and so on, became aware of the value of European heritage, Um, you know, uh, and felt like they didn't, you know, heritage just didn't live in England. You know, we had our own heritage and our own story that we really wanted to tell. Um, and that's really manifest in the um, uh, setting up of the Australian Heritage Commission and in the other things you've mentioned. Um, and interestingly, some of the first um, queries I got when running this new act or trying to look after it was in- suddenly, suddenly, there was an interest on, in trying to find Aboriginal places in some of these city developments. Um, so that people could use that um, to protect them, because actually at that time with the, with that act we we're talking about, there was more protection for um, indigenous sites in um, uh, lacking though it was than there was for historic sites. But I do there was a change in the wind, there was a change in the air and. Um, the Australian Heritage Commission, of course, um, there's, there's really a contrast, I think, between um, this, the first setting up of IATSIS, which really was set up um, to save, in inverted commas, um, for science, the culture which was fast receding in people's eyes, as I've said, rather than seeing um, Aboriginal um, culture flourishing and changing and adapting to survive, people saw it as becoming less pristine. And the Institute of Aboriginal Studies was initially set up to save, you know, the dying remnant of Aboriginal culture and to study it as quickly as possible before it all disappeared. So there was change, certainly, and there was recognition of the value of these things, but it was very limited was very limited and it was the same with heritage you know people did tend to go for classic um you know uh, victorian mansions and so on but um it certainly things were changing and it was a very exciting time from that point of view because um there were much more there were many opportunities you know to use both the australian heritage commission and IATSIS to get funding and to get recognition for some of the things we were working on. Yeah, and and there was still this um, 
prevailing sort of attitude or, or belief that, that nature and cult, culture were concepts that were seen as opposition, oppositional and mutually ex, exclusive. So was there one particular moment of insight when you realised that there needed to be sort of a whole of landscape or a whole of country, uh, like a cultural landscape approach to management, that where you needed to work with traditional owners? Um, yes, uh, uh, certainly the... the uh, any real protection for uh, heritage, uh, European heritage generally until the, the state government passed heritage, uh, that heritage legislation. So the only protection, the only way in which through the National Parks Act, this was the first piece of legislation to protect European heritage, you could only do it by actually creating a historic site. So um, you had to find a, you know, very important place and you can make it a historic site but uh, European heritage was not protected in the same general way as Aboriginal heritage. Uh, I'm sorry um, Mark I've forgotten the last question you asked me I've gone off on a tangent. No, that's right. That again? that's right. I was just wondering was there a particular moment of insight when you uh, saw that you needed to sort of take a cultural landscape yes. approach to management we're sort of reconciling yes. those op- sort of what were seen as yes. oppositional effects of uh, yes. nature and culture yes 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 well yes that was that was very apparent to um, me and the people I worked with fairly early the first thing that happened you know when this act was passed is that I quite quickly received requests from Aboriginal people to protect sites under that legislation um, and that sort of proved immediately that you know what the advice of the anthropologists and and so on was totally incorrect. Um, Aboriginal people um, who really had no political um, presence and um, were not um, not politically active at that time generally because they were far too busy trying to survive. But uh, they knew immediately about this legislation um, and they responded to it by asking for protection of the places they were looking for. And, you know, one of those famous people was Gubby Ted Thomas from Walliger Lakes, who's one of the first people who rang me up and asked me to come down and look at sites on, his, on the reserve down there because he was trying to get control of the reserve and to preserve some of these things. And when I went down, I saw... A range of sites which which he showed me and he talked to me about them in such a way that I knew that it was a it was a direct um, cultural connection um, that he had that he had acquired through you know oral history and it was very convincing and very real but it was also a, a um, a contemporary wish it's a contemporary wish to take over and protect and to manage these places which which um, were part of their of their heritage. But also going along with it was a way to actually get some control of the actual reserve. And then about the same time, the other you know, the other exciting thing that was happening with Aboriginal heritage was that people were finding archaeologists um, and um, other people, uh, other experts working in that field were finding um, very ancient sites. Like this, this, these were the, this was the sort of decade that um, Mungo 
um, the Willandra Lakes, um, the, a very ancient um, human remains were found there. And that provoked um, a lot of activity, a lot of publicity, um, and it provoked Alice Kelly, who was an elder um, from that part of the world, who was also very famous. Um, she was she grew up on a, a mission down near Balranel. She never learned to read and write, but she taught herself to do that. Um, and she wrote to me saying that she heard that her ancestors were being dug up um, on the walls of China, which is which is the name of the of the lunette on which they were being discovered. Um, and nobody had spoken to her about it. And um, she wanted to know why, you know, what was happening to them, why they were being dug up. Um, she wanted to know everything about them and she wanted a say in in what happened to these remains and to this this place. Um, and, you know, this, this we're talking 40,000 years ago. And, you know, there's a direct connection in Alice Kelly's head about these people and her contemporary existence. Um, and those, those um, two people were really, they're very valuable um, in terms of me being able to say, well, look, you know, we have to do something about this, about the way we're operating this act because um, it's ludicrous not to be involving Aboriginal people who want to be involved. Um, and the other thing about it was that it... Um, yes, it gave me, I had sort of an inkling of this before, but it gave me an immediate understanding that it was landscapes, landscapes we were talking about, not specific things that you put a ring around, which was, you know, the, what the Institute of Aboriginal Studies was, was doing. It was doing a big program on identifying sacred sites sort of, you know, putting a ring around them. And then the idea was that mining companies could proceed everywhere else because the sacred sites, in inverted commas, were protected. So it um, was really a great sort of upturning of um, ideas um, for us to begin to say, which we, we did, that it's a cultural landscape out there and that Aboriginal sites sort of very widespread, they're an integral part of the landscape and of nature and uh, they have to be treated in that way. Um, and that was, um, that was an important uh, breakthrough. Um, and one of the ways in which it was a breakthrough was that the Institute was giving um, specific um, funding to employ um, Aboriginal people and anthropologists to identify and locate and describe sacred sites. So, as I've said, they should be... There. But uh, this recognition and the practice of that recognition in New South Wales um, brought to the forefront the fact that uh, the Aboriginal presence in the landscape is represented everywhere and is integral to that landscape.
listening to the On Country podcast with me, Mark Woling, proudly brought to you by FrioCast Community Radio here in sunny South Fremantle. And so you've, you've taken on this job in 1969 with New South Wales Parks yeah. and Services. You've had all these Aboriginal people, very senior elders, contacting you and, and clearly frustrated and distressed about having no input. And so yeah. you uh, very cleverly and, and with great innovation um, found ways to employ the first uh, Indigenous cultural resource managers uh, and talk to me um, about the the, 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 but you're finding a lot of women had a lot of a great deal of knowledge where and there was this belief uh, mistaken belief that knowledge primarily resided with the men but you're finding all this um, knowledge uh, with the women held but you didn't have any money to employ a a female cultural resource manager so how did you uh, go about that um I had a position um, as a typist um, in my, you know, my little section. We had a, a typist, as you did in those days. Um, and I uh, took that that money and turned it into... But I couldn't create a site officer. I had to create a typist. Um, and so Jenny Carroll, who's our, our first the woman that we chose to do this... Um, uh, had to, um, the, the most difficult thing about getting her employed is to get her to pass a typing test. She had to pass a public service typing test so she could become a site officer because, you know, that was the only way we could employ her at the time, you know. But I, I should say, I'd like to say, Mark, that um, it was the work that um, our first our first two people that we, we applied to the Institute of Aboriginal Studies for funding to locate sacred sites in New South Wales because that was the brief. Um, And we um, needed to employ... We employed Ray Kelly, uh, the first Aboriginal site officer, a senior Aboriginal man from north coast of New South Wales, very um, very committed uh, and very knowledgeable, but also very able to talk to Aboriginal people. And then we advertised for an anthropologist and we got the young Howard Creamer, who's now known as Harry Creamer, um, a a Cambridge graduate in anthropology. Um, And we needed to employ um, him as well as Ray because we needed to provide the Institute of Aboriginal Study with um, written up in an anthropological way um, because at that time the institute was very scientifically inclined. So I needed um, somebody who could write that up, write up all the stuff that they were finding as they went around um, in a way that the institute could sort of absorb. So those two people... Howard and Ray, an unlikely couple, as anyone will tell you, but an amazingly effective couple, travelled around New South Wales. First time they went, they got information about missions and burial sites that Aboriginal people wanted protected. Um, So we responded immediately to that, and then they began to get information about more in-depth Aboriginal cultural um, places within that landscape. 
as they went, they got a lot of information about women, women's sites, and they talked to a lot of elderly women who were so keen to um, preserve some of their information that they would talk to Howard and Ray, but it was apparent to us that we were getting more information from men than from women, and so that's why we then were able to move forward. Jenny was the first female Aboriginal site officer, but there were many more as well, yeah. yeah and this was uh, 1969, 1970? Uh, that would have been about 1973 or four. Yeah. It took, um, it took me, um, well, yes, I think the Institute, um, the Institute got a big grant for federal government to, as I've said, locate and protect sacred sites because the mining industry was asking for it. And um, it was that would have been in the early 70s. So I think we got um, Howard and Ray in 73, something like that. Yes, 73, early 73, yep. Um, and then, you know, following on from that, um, we yeah. had other things. And the other thing was that... Um, the other states got grants um, for their people, for their site officers for five years. We only got them for one year initially because there was the feeling that they wouldn't find anything. So the rest is history. <laughs> it's quite staggering that they wouldn't think they wouldn't find anything. Um, now, the, the, the other... Um uh, a bit of fancy footwork that you manage, which I think was great, is un- under the um, the amendments to the New South Wales Parks and uh, Wildlife Act, there the committee was set up, and if, as we mentioned before, there was n- absolutely no Indigenous people on it. And you made, yeah. uh, as I understand it, you made representations to the minister to have that changed, and he... Um, uh, declined to do that. So how did you go about uh, changing the um, constituents on the um, committee? Well, um, I'd just like to I talk about that, but I'd just like to preface it by the fact that um, one of the things that we um, we did quite quickly with the, the present committee, um, and, you know, the statutory committee, which we appointed, um, I... Um, chose all the archaeologists and anthropologists and I chose people um, who who were sympathetic and one of the key people that I chose was Isabel McBride um, who, you know, got on board very quickly to these ideas. And um, the c- committee worked its way through. What the committee had to do was look at sites for which people wanted permits to excavate but also to look at sites which for which there was an application to destroy or damage it. In other words, you know, the natural gas pipelines coming across New South Wales, we had um, archaeologists doing surveys ahead of that. Sites were discovered, uh, um, archaeological sites, and um, there was also some anthropological work done, and we then had to work out uh, where the pipeline would go. And... um, such as the occurrence of Aboriginal sites in New South Wales, it, it would be impossible to put a pipeline from um, uh, South Australia to Sydney without impacting an Aboriginal site unless it was a complete zigzag. So um, the, this, this 
made it apparent to everyone that A, that there were sites everywhere, and B, that it, there was need for discussion with Aboriginal people because there would have to be some salvage of some sites um, because they were so widespread. So that was the job of the Aboriginal Sites Committee to recommend to the Minister that um, uh, whether the permit to destroy or damage the site should be given and under what conditions. Um, and the committee became... We, we went on field trips and we made sure the committee um, talked to Aboriginal people wherever we went. We'd go on a field trip to look at sites in the Hunter, for instance. That was the Hunter, you know, the big period of the beginning of the Hunter Valley mining. So there were surface sites being destroyed all over the place. And we couldn't sort of stop the mines, but we could um, move things around and we could do certain things. And to do this, I said that we needed... The first thing we said was that we needed to consult Aboriginal people. And um, the original sites committee, not the one that we replaced, that is the sites committee that had no Aboriginal people on it, pretty quickly reached um, uh, an agreement that they should ask all archaeologists who were getting permits to excavate sites to go and consult with Aboriginal people and get their agreement before they got a permit. And secondly, that um, any company wanting to destroy or damage a site should likewise consult with local uh, Aboriginal people. And, of course, um, this made the work of our site officers. They were right there in the middle of that. Um, you know, they had to sort of do the introductions and talk to uh, um, the developers, explain, you know, who the local people were, introduce them, have those discussions. Um, so that was something that we introduced as a policy. Of course, it was completely not in the Act. There was no word of consultation in the Act. So, but we just decided to do it. And I must say that, the, you know, the senior people in national parks, um, they accepted that very readily and it seemed to them to be logical. So that's, that's, that was the sort of first step. The second step was that we thought, well, you know, we've still got a committee of non-Aboriginal people making decisions, um, even though the committee of non-Aboriginal people have said that they won't agree to, um, average, to um, any work or any damage to Aboriginal sites without consultation and agreement from Aboriginal people, we still don't have that direct control. So I wrote to the minister and, uh, you know, did a submission. I didn't personally write to the minister, service, National Parks and Wildlife Service did a submission that I wrote saying, um, you know, we really need to involve Aboriginal people in these discussions in a formal way and give them some power. So we'd like to put some Aboriginal people on the committee. And the minister said that he wouldn't do that because that would be racist to put Aboriginal people on a committee just because they were Aboriginal. I mean, on an expert committee. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Anyway, so then we thought about it and the sites committee thought about it, but they didn't think very long. They said, okay, um, we will dissolve ourselves. 
um, we will say to the to to the director that we don't think this is appropriate. We'll resign, and he should appoint an ad hoc committee, which had a fifty fifty an Aboriginal chair and you know half Aboriginal people and half um, anthropological uh, archaeological experts, and so that committee um, worked. It was often difficult. It was often very difficult. It was very difficult for our site officers and it was difficult for our um, our archaeologists because there were a lot of tensions and pressures, as you can imagine. And it was before um, the um, we had, uh, you know, Aboriginal, uh, local, local Aboriginal land councils. So it was, there was no sort of Aboriginal... Di- official Aboriginal channel through which to direct this order that we were giving people to consult. Um, so it was a bit messy, and but it was very effective in, in, I think, one of the things in this process which was very effective, although God knows we did some quite inappropriate things looking back, but the fact that we were consulting Aboriginal people and that they knew that we were consulting them and that they had some power in the game immensely um, raised uh, their um, status in their own minds. But Well, I wouldn't say immensely, but it did raise their status. I mean, people were actually consulting them. But the other thing it did was to make Aboriginal communities very aware of that that somebody was valuing their culture. Somebody was putting fences around cemeteries. Somebody was saying, well, what do you think about this proposal, etc.? And do you want to be involved in this excavation? So that, I think, was the beginning of, of what Ray Kelly would have called the cultural revival. Not in the sense of culture having gone away, but in the sense of people understanding not only they themselves, but elements of the of the government and of the white community valued that culture, and that was um, that was really significant, I think. Yeah, and um, I think the the um, the land rights acts in New South Wales was nineteen seventy four, and that's when you had the formation of land councils, uh-huh. and was that. Um, I, might have my I think wrong. it was later than that, or yeah. I may be wrong. I had, thought it was 1980, but, you know, my my brain is very hazy, so it may have been. You're probably more up on that than me. But yeah. certainly, certainly we had the land councils. Um, oh, sorry. That, it's that, not, it's um, 1981. Sorry. Not 1981. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Yes. Yes, 1981. That's right. That's correct. Yes. So it wasn't, um, you know, we, we, we did without them for a long while, um, um, and they were very, um, they were very effective and useful when they when they first came um, into being. What, what uh, from I, our point of view, what, what I was going to ask you about actually, in which I got my dates mixed up, was um, in the in nineteen seventy four. There was the uh, the declaration, the Eagle Hawk and Crow Declaration. Um, yes, which uh, Gary Foley had a lot to do with. Can you talk a little bit about that? I don't know much about it. Oh, well, well, um, it's well worth getting the text, which the Institute of Aboriginal Studies would have. Um, 
it was a it was a real revolution for the institute of for the members of the Institute of Aboriginal Studies. Um, the members of the Institute of Aboriginal Studies had to be sort of voted on, and they were all senior academics, um, archaeologists, anthropologists, linguists, anyone working in, in the field of Aboriginal Studies. Um, and they would, you know, they had, a, they had quite a good grant system. They would give grants mainly to the members to do research work, um, and they would um, they have an they would have an annual conference, um, and the annual conference brought um, archaeologists, academics, but increasingly um, uh, people working in cultural heritage management in the states, like myself and other people, to Canberra um, once a year. And at one of these would be nineteen seventy four meeting, there was a um, a, uh, a declaration, if you like, um, by a group calling themselves Eagle, Hawk and Crow, which is, you know, Eagle, Hawk and Crow are uh, ancestral tradition, very strong ancestral traditional um, figures that, you know, spread across Australia on the dreaming tracks and so on. And um, this was, a, a, this was a, a sort of statement to... Um, anthropologists to academics generally, researchers, I suppose, to researchers saying, um, hey, you know, saying publicly and loudly what um, the sort of ideas we've been working on, that is, um, you know, you can't just go and um, sort of um, research Aboriginal people in the ways you do without recognition and consultation and power being given to them or at least um, some recognition of um, the people you're, you're researching. Um, and that was a, uh, a great challenge and a great um, wake-up call to um, the people at the, who were working um, for the Institute, the, the, um, the research community. I suppose, um, and it caused um, other people and other states to take up um, the ideas of consultation in a much stronger way, and it caused the Australian Archaeological Association to um, itself, in the years following that, to run a conference with Aboriginal people about research, um, and that was a that was a great leap forward. Um, I must say that um, the sort of consultation between archaeologists and Aboriginal people um, that we that we asked for was was a big ask both for the Aboriginal communities who are you know let's face it like people coming out of a Holocaust and suddenly being asked to consider whether the stone tools in such and such a place were. Um, the valuable. It's sort of like that's the sort of question the archaeologists would ask. And the archaeologists themselves were very diffident and um, uh, unsure about how to conduct this consultation. And I think um, it was a big, it was a very big demand on our part to, to ask those, those two parties to do that sort of in the circumstances that we were in at the time. But from that has come a real, the 
the sort of relationships, Mark, that you're, you know, working on today and that are the subject of this podcast came out of that, came out of that exchange of ideas, the friendships it developed, the trust it developed were remarkable and I think that was one of the, the beginning of those bonds was one of the the big legacies that um, was important. And uh, so I I think there's... um uh, there's this one. There is this wonderful photo you have from I think that's around 1974. If you all in the office and uh, mm. the whole team together, black and white, and um, yeah. there's yeah. A, you've got a team of about six or seven at this stage, six or seven Aboriginal people working with you. Um, yeah. So talk talk to me a bit about that. Like, by how many people did you end up in your uh, unit? Oh, Mark, I really. <laughs> I really can't remember that, but um, I worked in um, national parks until the mid eighties, and um, a bit later than that. And we would have had we we began to get um, as site Aboriginal site officers um, sort of you know regionalised. So you know people would work in different regions um, throughout. We had spread across the state, and they worked from our district or our regional offices, national parks, and um, there would have been... Um, and also we we ran, we began running a, a program of training rangers as well, you know, so we took Aboriginal people on as, as ordinary rangers, as, you know, people who, who manage the parks, etc., as well as site officers. And we also um, trained... We ran training courses for the um, for one so that one ranger in every district had attended a ten day training course that we ran about Aboriginal sites and Aboriginal people and you know how to how to run the site register how to work with Aboriginal people and these were not Aboriginal people these were rangers that we had chosen or who chosen themselves to become responsible for, you know, the whole Aboriginal sites thing in their district area. And that was very useful too because um, uh, they were then able to work with the young Aboriginal trainee rangers who came. And um, that was was a – I guess it was good for its time, I think, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, and um, so by then, I think we had we would have had about um, maybe yes, probably about by then we probably had about seven or eight. But later than that, we had about um, oh fifteen or twenty or more. You know, it did keep growing incrementally um, in both strands, if you like. There was the site officer strand. But and then there was um, we took particular care to try to recruit some um, Aboriginal people to work as as you know rangers generally in various places. Yeah, yeah, that's that's uh, fantastic. Um, but then you went on to um, work with ICOMOS, and um, I, I keep using the acronym ICOMOS. I've used it so often, I've kind of forgotten what it stands for. It's the International <laughs> Committee on uh, Monuments and Sites. Is that correct? Yeah, 
sort of monuments and sites. Yeah. It's in Italian, the, the um, so that's why it doesn't quite fit. Oh. But that's what it was, International Council of Monuments and Sites. And then there was the uh, the, the Borough Charter, which was actually at Borough in South Australia. It's where my uh, my family's yeah. from. My, my um, grandparents are bur- buried and my mother's buried in the Borough um, Cemetery there. Um, but uh, talk to me a bit about that's how... Uh, sorry? Uh, well, it's amazing, your connection with Borough, because it's very important in the history of... of uh, Australian heritage, you know, the development of the Australian heritage movement, yeah. Yeah, talk to me anyway. a bit about that and how that have influenced um, uh, heritage management in Australia and through through the, the charter. Mm. Well, this is a big subject in itself. <laughs> um, when we, when Australians, when the, sorry, when the um, Australian Heritage Commission was um, set up, uh, it um, became interested in ICOMOS, which was UNESCO International Council of Monuments and Sites, which is looking after um, uh, monuments and sites internationally on a world level, and you know was itself working then on the um, the world on creating a world heritage list, etc. Um, and uh, the Australian Heritage Commission decided that it needed some rules and rubrics and laws or at least um, approved practices for conservation of heritage places because it's very easy if you sort of do the wrong conservation, um, like if you over-restore something or if you destroy um, various elements to conserve other elements, you can do a lot of damage. Um, so it needed a sort of set of rules or a charter. Um, and so it went looking internationally for a charter and it found the Venice Charter, which was the charter passed by, um, I suppose, people meeting um, uh, as part of the League of Nations. Um, well, I'm not sure about that. But anyway, um, there was a, a general meeting of international conservators and experts who decided to have a charter in which they said um, what was good conservation practice and what should not be undertaken for um, the conservation of important places because it would, in fact, um, cause damage. Um, The Australian Heritage Commission um, was seeking uh, a charter which would assist it in telling um, people working on the conservation of heritage how to go about that, how to get the best results and how not to damage these places. Um, It then um, looked at the Venice Charter, which was what ICOMOS was using at the time, was a charter from the early 20th century which laid down rules for how buildings, buildings almost entirely should be, or buildings or, or ruins, um, archaeological sites, should be conserved. Um, so the Australian Heritage Commission looked at that and decided that um, it would firstly set up um, its own branch in Australia of the of ICOMOS, the International Council of Monuments and Sites, which ICOMOS encouraged every country to do. So that was set up, and then ICOMOS set, set about... Um, 
creating rules for itself about how it would how it would look after places and it made two very important changes to the Venice Charter which have been very influential internationally first of all it looked at the situation in Australia it looked at the um, nature of Aboriginal heritage the intangible nature of Aboriginal heritage the importance of not just place but landscape, um, the need to um, adapt to a culture where, which had a living heritage as opposed to the previous emphasis with the Venice Charter had been on a heritage which was of the past. That is, the first things that people were thinking about were the pyramids and um, the Great Wall of China and all of those monuments that stick in your head from all over the world but um, most of them were not um, being used in the same way as Aboriginal people had a a, a contemporary um, there was a contemporary element to Aboriginal heritage there was an element of great complexity there was an element of high level of intangibility that is it didn't just the heritage places did, did not reside in their physical uh, appearance, um, it, it's very. It was very, uh, or their physical, actual physical existence. Um, it was really the significance of places um, was a contemporary living thing, and so therefore the um, Australia ICOMOS added the term social significance um, to the three other. Um, values of places which the Venice Charter had had. But the second thing it did was to say, well, actually, we don't know um, when we as professionals uh, come to look at a site, we don't actually know what its values are. We know what we think some of its values are as far as we're concerned, but we don't know what all the values of this place are. So a good example is um, the rock paintings um, of Australia, which are very famous and um, very aesthetically pleasing, very historically important, um, very much a thing which um, uh, archaeologists and rock art specialists wanted to conserve. But these places were also... Um, of contemporary significance, of contemporary essentialness to Aboriginal people. And therefore, Aboriginal people sometimes wanted to go on repainting them as they had previously. And this meant that there was a very important um, job that had to be done before you said, OK, we've decided this is important, we're going to conserve it. The job was to work out exactly what significance it had, not just archaeological, not just aesthetic, but contemporary, cultural, spiritual, a whole range of things that might come from other stakeholders or other people who who recognised other values in that site. So the Borough Charter says, basically, that first you must 
consult the right people. You must work what, out what all the values of a site are, not just the ones that an archaeologist might pick out or an architect might pick out. You need to identify all of those things. You need to write a statement of significance which says all the reasons why a place is important and then you need to manage that place in the long run to look after all of those values. And so the, the, it's, it's a big change from um, the previous um, just acceptance by people that really um, heritage meant scientific, aesthetic or historic value. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many other elements of heritage value that reside in the people who have associations with that site and which need to be expressed and protected. So that's, and that's now, um, that's now called values-based management and that's what the um, uh, World Heritage Committee uses when it asks people to write valid management plans for places of significance that it's intending to put on the World Heritage List. Um, And that has made um, an important change in heritage. But as you can see, it fits really it fits really significantly or really neatly into the sort of um, ideas and policies we were pursuing at national parks with respect to Aboriginal heritage. Yes, and um, it's been a, a, a really significant contribution you've made, and that's been a, and the group that you worked with, and, and I've. Um, I'm hoping to be able to speak to some of those um, Indigenous uh, people you worked with uh, on on upcoming podcasts. So, uh, Sharon, looking back on your long and illustrious career in uh, in this uh, space, uh, how do you see things at the moment? And, and sort of looking back, um, uh, you can obviously be proud of, of your contribution, but... Uh, how about things at the moment and what do you see as the future? Well, I guess there are a couple of things I'd like to say about that. Of course, um, our achievements and, um, you know, I'm always amazed when I think of the achievements of the Aboriginal people that I worked with. You know, they were the ones right out there on the... Uh, front line, you know. Um, They were the ones that had to know enough about, um, you know, the legislation and cultural significance and stone tools, for goodness sake, to be able to to work with um, the authorities. And they're also the people who we relied on to um, work with the Aboriginal community. And, you know, this was a situation in which they were always... Um, they were consummate diplomats, I have to say. But it's a situation in which they were always, as I say, um, right there in the decision-making process. And, um, of course, they also added and explained and um, complained about what we were doing, um, wanting changes, wanting new ways to go themselves. So... Um, they were very much the leaders in this process. Um, I 
I am proud of um, what these people did. Um, I um, also feel that, um, from my own point of view, it um, it was it it took me a little while to to come to the realization that I, I wasn't really um, running <laughs> the joint in New South Wales, in other words, and that. Eventually, sooner rather than later, um, I should not be in the position that I was in because, um, you know, that clearly we needed we needed a whole new system whereby there was it was an Aboriginal organisation that was um, a working directly with the government and that um, the sort of power that I mean I took a great deal of pleasure when I started working at National Parks. It was the most wonderful job I ever had. Um, and I felt very much like I was sort of the moving centre of that. And what needed to happen was for me not to be the moving centre of that, but for Aboriginal people to move in um, completely. And one of my regrets in this world was that this this really hasn't happened Um the legislation really has not been... There have been a couple of important amendments, but the legislation is really much the same as it was in 1969. If you read it, you'd be shocked. Um, and, you know, Parks has done a really good job interpreting and using that as, as we did, you know, stretching it until it nearly snapped. But um, the fact of the matter is that there have been four attempts in New South Wales to reform the legislation and none of them have been brought forward by the governments that started them it's for various reasons. But um, if you compare the situation between New South Wales and Victoria, you'll see that um, uh, it, it's, it really is unfinished business that really needs to be pursued. And that, that, that makes me, um, you know, unhappy that that, that, that that really hasn't happened. Although... You know, there are some, there are very, there are large numbers of Aboriginal people working on Aboriginal heritage in New South Wales and doing a great job. Um, the system needs to be improved. So um, that's something that I, I think is um, very, uh, very um, much needed. And I hope the present attempt succeeds and so does everyone else I can tell you we're all rather over it you know <laughs> because one of the things that's happened has been you know people have been expecting for 20 years now for a separate Aboriginal authority to be set up and while that's about to be happening Parks hasn't actually given it given this whole cultural uh, heritage thing the attention it needs because it's been expecting to pass it on do you see what I mean so it's yeah. sort of went to a stage where it just had a, a big hiatus. Um, and if you look at the difference between the progress with that, with, with respect to that, that's being made in, um, in Victoria, for instance, um, it's, it's quite an urgent thing, in my view. Yeah, and there was a, a 2021, uh, I think it's still going, the review of the, uh, the Heritage Act in New South Wales. And We've seen parallels here in Western Australia with the debacle with yeah. the Aboriginal Heritage Act 1972, yeah. but just a debacle yeah. on, on all sides. 
Um, but I'll, I'll be talking yeah. about that um, on a later podcast. Yeah. Um, but the other thing, yeah, yes, I, I think that's that's very important. But the other thing that I have to say is that um, one of the joys of my life has been the um, the joint coming together of archaeological knowledge and traditional knowledge to support um, very important um, uh, cases of saving sites, um, in, for instance, in the Land and Environment Court, but also the working, the, the, um, the uh, relationship between archaeologists and Aboriginal people is a very thriving one these days. And that has benefited, um, of course, Aboriginal people by giving them their a rightful role in decision-making about the sites. But it has also immensely benefited anthropo- archaeologists and anthropologists, and in particular with archaeologists, their work has become so much richer and so much more uh, relevant, in my view, um, because of this this work that's being done. Um, and I have to say, of course, that an extremely good example of that is a department that you work in where there's a real integration, not just of Aboriginal people and um, professional archaeologists, but a real integration of um, research and management. So... It's not just a situation where the archaeologist goes, gets the research, goes away, writes it up, gets a PhD, and nothing happens. It's a situation of moving forward with um, the research, but also the curation, the management, the making, the the ongoing attempts to improve conservation. And that's um, coming out of um, academic university departments now, which... Previously, that was rare, but now um, it's a new it's a new way of doing things, which is immensely pleasing to me because I see the the value of it. Yeah, and there's that great continuity. So, look, I think that's a great place to to leave it. And and I would go back and again paraphrase uh, Nadi Simpson's uh, comment about seeing value in the relationship between. Um, the two different ways of understanding words and place and story and I think you and your colleagues, Indigenous colleagues, um, have epitomised that and um, I'd like to uh, thank you for such an interesting uh, conversation and, and an interesting um, insight into the, the, the history and development of um, cultural heritage and cultural resource management in Australia. Well, thank you very much, Mark, and um, I think the podcast is great. Listen to um, Dennis Rose last week, I think it was, or sometime a little while ago. I know, I know Dennis, of course, but his his um, his podcast was terrific, and it's I think it's a really um, it's a, it's another it's another great way of celebrating this relationship, actually, because it's relevant to um, all all of us who, who care about Aboriginal heritage. So thank you very much. I think it's exciting. Oh, look, it's a labour of love. It's a real honour to be speaking to, to all of you. So, um, yeah, thanks for the, the comments. Okay, that's a wrap for episode three. A big thanks to Sharon Sullivan for such a fantastic conversation. 
You've been listening to the On Country podcast with me, Mark Woling. Don't forget to like, subscribe and write a review or just tell your friends. And you can also download the FrioCast app where you'll find more great stories and music. We'll finish today's episode with the Stiff Gins and their beautiful song, Yandor. So until next time, we'll see you soon.